Today, you get to celebrate your inner litmus with Vizier, please. A hateful voyage to the Delta Quadrant. My name is Joseph. And I'm your co-host, Peter. And Peter, let's dive right in. What did we watch this week? Season 6, episode 14, Memorial. I think this episode fucks. <laughs> I thought it was excellent. I was like momentarily down on it when I was we were introing it for last week because Virtuoso had beaten me down so completely. <laughs> and then I started watching this and I'm like, oh, man, I don't re- didn't remember that, that this was this good. And it was great. I, I sincerely enjoyed this episode. And it's a clear front runner right now for best of the season. Oh, no, I wouldn't go best. It it was to me, it was a good story, but uh, it was an intense story and not exactly my cup of tea, but I respect it for what it was. Uh, This was a brand Braga story directed by Alan Crocker. I think that's how it's it's, uh, Croker, Croker, Crocker. It's a deep one, especially for season six. It's deep. And my my baseline on these things, Peter, is that if you can get a good performance out of Garrett Wang, then you've done an excellent job with your episode. And they actually do get a good performance out of him here. And hell, this is probably like the best Neelix content we've had in quite some time. Very too. long time. And that's, you know, my my takeaway thumbs up on this one is it's been a while since we've seen Neelix. It's been a very long time since we've seen great Neelix uh, and, you know, this is one of those episodes where I think everybody brings their A game. So, you know, uh, again, I respect it. It's not it's not going to be my front runner for best just because the subject material I don't know, feels a little too heavy. But uh, it's a good one. There, there's quality in the script. There's quality in the staff, you know, the, the acting and there's quality with the set locations they use. I think I, I think that's all true. I think that heavy sometimes works really well for Trek and that as long as this is sometimes food, it's excellent, which because this is such an outlier when it comes to the seriousness of its content. I mean, like we're coming up against an episode where it was literally a bunch of contemptible, tiny, nerdy, neckbeard aliens want to make the doctor into a, a opera singer. I get it, right? That's a little different. But uh, it's one of the more uh, cinematic episodes of Voyager I think we've ever watched and just how they frame things. Uh, it's It flows so much differently than a normal episode of Voyager. The cinematography, uh, I particularly point out the sound design. I think the music and effects are just extremely high quality in this episode and it, it made it the whole thing stand out. I can't say the sound really stood out as anything crazy to me. Do you have any like examples of, of where you were picking that up in the dream sequences or the visions or the remembrance of the event? Uh, the weapon weapons fire is extremely sharp. The particle weapons fire. It's it, you know, sometimes the phaser sound, it kind of sounds kind of a, this flat, like kind of, it sounds almost sanitized. Whereas this felt like, it was rounds being shot out of a out of a rifle, you know, like it, it sounded more visceral and it sounded heavier. And like when when things hit, it had an impact. And then there was great use of discordant musical themes uh, while they're in the, those same sequences, particularly with like when something really distressing was happening to heighten those kinds of moods. And it's not something that I ever 
remember about episodes of Voyager because it's it is just so samey so often with the music and and some of the intangibles of of presenting their stories and i it just all stood out to me so much more in this episode it's what i think really made me fall fall in love with it so we open up on the delta flyer and it's a full house we've got chakotay paris neelix and harry kim and we find out that they've been on a two-week away team mission uh, which we'll later find out was uh, scouting and resource gathering. Uh, <laughs> what is the Delta Flyer? What isn't the Delta Flyer? Uh, is it a place you want to spend two weeks? Did you know that it's a shuttlecraft that has sonic showers in a big cargo bay? Did you know it could comfortably sleep, or maybe uncomfortably in this case, four people, in, I'm sorry, three people in a house cat <laughs> <laughs> for two weeks? Uh, you can tell that there's, there's some tension. Uh, Harry Kim acts like a real bitch yelling at Tom about some dirty plates and tries to play it off as a, and I quote, biohazard. <laughs> I don't think leftover replicated lasagna is uh, reaching that level there, Harry. Come on, bud. Yeah, that's, that's a real stretch. Toughen up, toughen up, bud. You've died. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Come on. Since, since when do you care about biohazards? You're the one over there banging 90 space hotties without uh, EMH permission. I do like the frazzled look they give everyone. You know, their their hair is kind of messed up. They look like they've been in these clothes a little too long. But you can see the stank. And I think that is the best way to put it. We've all been there, man. We've all been in that minivan on the way to a convention with people you didn't realize that you didn't really want to be in the same car with for more than four hours. So you feel it. And it's Neelix who, as often the case, steps forward with the the optimistic uh, glass is half full attitude. And I found it refreshing and charming. And again, you know, I, I, I miss somehow miss Neelix. So <laughs> it was nice to see him uh, up and at him on this one. They arrive back at Voyager. They dock. Well, hold, hold on and... before you get into that. they say, now there's a site for sore eyes and you see Voyager and they're coming up behind it. And I put in my notes like, man, what are the odds of Voyager being okay? And I put 0.0%. It was such a setup to me that, like, <laughs> oh, uh, you know, feral mountain lions had escaped the holodeck <laughs> and taken the ship over, or everybody had come down with COVID and they're all knocked the fuck out. Like, when Jane what, what are those feral mountain lions with COVID? I mean, you know. Sure. With anything's Morgan possible. Plans. Yes. But, you know, what? whatever. The Borg pixie dust got out of control. So when Janeway actually replies back in a chipper voice, I was like, no fucking way. <laughs> that's the last thing. I, that, that's the first loop this episode knocked me through. They land. Uh, they are greeted by the doctor who's like, you need to all come for your checkup. And the rest of them could not at all be less interested in getting uh, a physical from the doctor right now. Uh Ch- uh, Chakotay, Harry, and Neelix just want to sleep, uh, whereas Tom is actually greeted by Bolana and is obviously very happy to see her. And they have more chemistry here in this moment than they do 95% of the time. I don't know if the actors were just in, in, in a good mood or whatever, but they seem to be more compatible here. You know, she he's, actually does, in fact, seem uh, to have missed her. She seems to have missed him. Uh, they go back to their quarters. 
you know, Belana says, I've got a surprise. Tom's like, is it one where we bang? He, she's like, no, but you know, maybe later. And they go in and we, and we find that Belana absolutely deserves the girlfriend of the week trophy because to show her appreciation for her boyfriend, she has used her cool mechanic girlfriend skills to build him a vintage television set. So as she explains, she replicated the parts, but assembled it herself. So she she like got a, you know, a tube or whatever and created a, a classic wood framed fifties television. Although in this case it comes with a remote control as a bit of, of dramatic license. Yeah, man. Like let's talk about the, the, Tom Lana Balam. I don't I don't know what the right way to Tom Lana. Yeah. Tom Lana. Um, we know that Tom is a piece of shit and Tom will continue to be a piece of shit later in this episode in regards to their relationship. But like is is the shittiness a one way street? I'm I'm trying to think of situations where she has been a bad girlfriend and I'm not really coming up with anything like she's had personal strife. She's had to deal with like her. um her PTSD episode with the Cardassian murder cave extreme risk. And she was a little withdrawn, but I'd say Tom didn't really try the best to to reach out and console her. And, you know, she's never interfaced directly with a homicidal shuttlecraft and like tried to kill him. So I I think this is like 100 percent. Tom is the bad part of this. I mean, recall in that episode where Tom decides to hook his brain into a literal murder machine that it is Bolana who risks her life to save him. Um, it, it is, it is 100% that Bolana is the good part of this, of this duo. Uh, and, and Tom is always the shit bag, but that's very common in Star Trek relationships for the most part. The, the guy is usually always awful. <laughs> um, in, in DS9, they write their relationship stuff a lot better and and with a lot more maturity. And as a consequence, it's not quite so one-sided. Uh, but in in every other Trek show, it's just they always fall into this weird rut where the guy is always just kind of an asshole. <laughs> and Tom is 100% uh, the bad part of this relationship. Because, man, could you imagine, like, coming home and, like, I thought so much of you in your absence. I built you a vintage television set from scratch. With my replicator rations, which are are flowing pretty freely by all the popcorn and beer that they replicate there. And Uh, and programmed it with television programs from the database. So you can, like, turn it on and, like, it's like, you know, I I built you an SNES mini from scratch. (laughs) You know, like, here you go. It's a cool chance to see around Tom's quarters. Tom, I'm wondering if they moved him into shittier quarters once he was demoted from lieutenant because he does not have any exterior windows, which probably sucks. Uh, But he's got some interesting uh, accommodations, right? All of the furniture in his quarters is very clearly dated to like. It's retro. Yeah, 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 yeah. Real retro. So he instantly sits on his ass in front of the TV. She's got the popcorn. He's got a beer. Uh, He tries to, like you said, one up her and be like, oh, well, actually, they didn't have uh, remotes back then. And it's like, oh, Tom, is there anything that you 
don't know between Mars missions, Fort Knox, combustion engines, crack shot piloting, warp fields, uh, you know, ocean, ocean uh, of exploration. Oh, yes, of course. Don't forget that CRT technology that that's, you know, cathode ray tube like. Shut the fuck up, Tom, eat, eat, eat your eat your popcorn, drink your beer, shut up. I want to appreciate on a personal level that one of the television programs that comes on is uh, the old uh, Untouchables TV show with uh, Robert Stack as Elliot Ness, which I used to watch with my grandfather. Um, I, I forget what cable sh- channel that they would run those uh, reruns on, but uh, per- like put it on when once when we were watching, you know, I was hanging out at their house and was like, oh, you, you need to watch this with me. And. I totally got into watching as much of the Untouchables with Robert Stack as I could find later on in life. I it, that warmed my nostalgic heart to see that. I I, I imagine that was just some shit that they own because it's Paramount or whatever. But good job, guys. <laughs> so Tom's watching this um, flipping between channels. Bellana's already passed out. I like the the dejected girlfriend look she gives, which already starts lending credence to Tom being a shit bag in this episode as he immediately ignores her and, and completely is absorbed by the television programming he's watching. And as he's flipping around the channels, he gets to this war movie with laser guns, which he doesn't seem to care for and tries to move off of it. And the more you watch it, the more you see that it's very much out of place. And then you see him participating in the, uh, the war itself. And he starts looking at Bellana like, are you seeing what I'm seeing? But she's still sleeping. And eventually uh, he gets shot on the TV and uh, Bellana ends up waking up while he's sleeping on the floor. Method by which they start to convey the the all of the flashback slash memories that that we're ultimately going to see in this episode, I thought was very clever, as I mentioned in the opening, because it, it kind of always segues in from whatever the person was doing into the memory but it's different each time it's not like the same pattern repeating um you know so for tom it was taking the the form of i'm engrossed in my television programming and now i'm living through this experience on this planet with this battle later on we'll see harry go through a circumstance where he he comes overwhelmed being in Jeffrey's tube and feeling claustrophobic. Chakotay is having dreams, but he's the dream warrior, so it doesn't bother him as much. Yeah, he's a real champ through all of this. Neelix actually has probably the strongest reaction. Oh, and we'll get to that, but very cool. Um, you know, th- they took time to try and craft a way to introduce these, the impact of all this on each character in a very uh, different way that kind of meshes with their personalities i think in a in a fashion that took some care and some craft the most extreme version of this of course being neelix who is visibly distraught uh and then naomi wildman comes in and starts bothering him so he gets even more wound up which uh my heart goes out to him i (laughs) so he's got this big wicked ass looking knife he's cutting potatoes with and she just keeps pestering him and i'm like Oh man, is Neelix about to shank Naomi Wildman with this thing? Like, <laughs> there's some real Chekhov's gun going on here. I hope he gets her. <laughs> Come on, Neelix, let's do this, man. Let's let's go there. And that's not quite the way that plays out. What happens is 
Uh, instead of just stabbing her with a knife, he kind of takes her hostage a little bit with a friendly phaser fight there in 10 forward or the mess hall with uh, security. Uh, but he's not holding her hostage. He's trying to protect her. He believes that there is a conflict. He's getting his own flashbacks. He thinks the children are in danger and he has moved into a defensive position. I cannot speak any more highly about Ethan Phillips acting ability than this scene you're describing. Like it goes from Neelix being a little off, but very Neelixy to just an absolute crazed maniac who is desperate and fighting a this weird phaser battle with with uh, a very confused security team, including Tuvok, who's like, ah, what the fuck is this? And while they're just confused, he is possessing that moment of panic of like, I need to defend Naomi from these attackers, right? Like he's reliving this traumatic experience of this battle and he's there and you could you get that the character is there because he's doing such a good job of authentically being in this panicked mode and that's what's like ties together him and and Garrett Wang in this episode too that's what Garrett we'll see later on kind of like him kind of go whole hog on it but like that is really just so hard to do right to like really make the viewer think like that their your character is traumatized I get that here I 100% get that from him here. As far as the little hostage situation goes, I have to wonder why they wouldn't just beam Neelix into the bridge or like beam the phaser out of his hand. Or I mean, obviously, they're trying to create a tense situation. And ultimately, it's uh, Chakotay, everybody's uh, favorite emotional advisor, who comes down and he talks Neelix off the ledge using some in-character reasoning. Because as you mentioned, Chakotay has also had his memories of what's going on here and and he gets neelix to to back down and uh they all end up going back to sick bay where everybody had foolishly blown the doctor off who had requested they take their initial physicals per starfleet protocol and you find out once you know it uh there is something afoot and they seem to be in this the shared memory event. And I like the way that they carry this mystery forward because, and even Jane will call out, you know, this isn't the first time that our memories have been altered. Yeah. I mean, that, that was an excellent thing for her to immediately bring up is well, just because you have a memory of something doesn't mean it actually fucking happened. We've been fucked with a lot. So let's get to the bottom of what's occurred. A um, lot of doubt. you know, okay, well, Tom remembers getting shot. And if they can edit our memories and they can probably cover up our wounds, is this a false memory that's been planted? Uh, is this a shared experience we actually partook in and none of us remember? And again, there's there's a lot of I don't want to say retread, but this is a story that we're familiar with in Voyager, both in terms of uh, Voyager crew members being co-opted legitimately into ground war, uh, which was. Uh, What's the one with the Predators where Chakotay gets co-opted into fighting in Vietnam? And that's the one with the where they, they talk in that weird iambic pigtaminer sing-songy way. Oh, that that's right. I hated, hated that episode. Yeah, yeah you did. <laughs> and, I, and I liked it. And 
Yeah, I was like, think of your mothers and your sisters with your footfalls. Stop. Stop. Yeah, yeah. Listen, I just went through virtuoso. I don't, I don't, don't, don't drag this <laughs> shit out right now. All right. Um, so you've had these situations where Voyager crew members have legitimately been involved in foreign conflicts uh, as unwilling participants. You've got uh, planted memories, if you'll remember. I think it was actually called Remember. That was the one where the uh, the telepathic race that played the blue ball guitar. And the one lady was like pumping Balana full of sexy dreams. Oh, yeah. That's the one with uh, Senator Kelly. And, yeah. And the, the Nazis versus the gypsies. Yeah. yeah. Or they're burning them at the stake. And I want to say there's a couple other ones. So there's this is touching on a lot of themes that we have seen uh, Voyager involved in. So um, they do what any reasonable crew would do. And they say, let's let's fly back towards the thing that made everybody else sick. Uh, and see if we can't discover what's going on. But for the people who were involved, specifically Tom, they are not having a good time. We, we've mentioned, you know, Tom has this flash of this circumstance, wakes up from what he thinks is a dream. Harry Kim is in a Jeffrey's tube, starts feeling claustrophobic, starts hearing voices. Neelix has a whole, you know, episode where he is reliving this traumatic event as shooting at Tuvok over it and holding Naomi Wildman a hostage who's very, very concerned about what's happening. I want to inter- uh, interject just real quick. The, the misstep in this episode for me is specifically in regards to Neelix, who has had combat experience, who has carried the shame of being a deserter. And I think there was a really great opportunity for the guilt of his military career during the invasion of Talix and, and what he was forced to deal with in these memories. I do think they pay that off though at the end a little bit. We'll get to that. Let's hold that thought. I want to, I want to talk about that more when we actually talk about the last full scene of the episode. Want to circle back first though, to Chakotay, because we mentioned like, he's like a real bro through this whole thing. He's essentially unaffected by these memories on an emotional level. He, he is able to act rationally throughout the entire episode without incident despite the fact that he is going through the same thing everything everyone else is going through. And they don't explain why. It's just he seems to be far more centered just on a personality level. It's all implication, whereas everybody else is just not as sure of themselves as Chakotay is. Maybe. Or maybe years of being a Maquis and working around Lon Suter, uh, Chakotay's, <laughs> Chakotay's <laughs> seen some shit. <laughs> and maybe what happened on the fucking planet of, you know, Killy Prime or whatever it was, uh, it doesn't really compare to the the stuff he's really been through. But, you know, joking aside, he he had to come to terms with jungle Vietnam with uh, the what you call those guys from Warhammer. Yeah, yeah. The catch and jungle fighters that that and all the legit experiences that he had. Uh, in the Maquis, in that terrorist guerrilla lifestyle, uh, him fighting for his life with the Borg colony, like holding down Cardassians for Dolby to murder, you know, just Chakotay's. You know, Chakotay some seems some shit. I he's 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 been training for this and it shows. That's probably the correct answer is just he's a little bit more uh, I want to say jaded, but just a little desensitized to it all so that it's not affecting him emotionally as much. But I prefer to think that his, his dream warrior powers kicked in 
Now, interestingly, out of the entire group, the only person who has a real emotional support network in place, because everybody else is a bachelor with ostensibly no friends, is Tom, who's got Balana. And Tom, as normal, is acting like a complete miserable bitch. He is not taking these events well, which I appreciate because at the end of the day, especially the, the true Starfleet people, they are good people who do the right thing at great cost to their own personal safety. So to have these memories of being um, death squad participants should should be a hard concept to swallow. But Balana, you know, she's trying to talk sense and saying, hey, can you just for a minute entertain the fact that maybe these aren't real memories that you did and maybe this blood really isn't on your hands? And, you know, Tom just thrashes about emotionally blowing her off. And uh, she's like, all right, well, you know where to find me. Peace out, bitch. To be clear, Bolana is trying to be super supportive. Like, no questions. Like, hey, I brought you more TV shows. She's not like saying, hey, get over it. Right. Mm -hmm. She's not like, like, let's burn some incense and get this out of here. Like Janeway's real matronly uh, motherly advice to her. Yeah, this is some real I'm trying to empathize and console and I'm going to offer distraction. I'm going to offer some sound advice. I'm going to offer my emotional support. When I say Bolana's girlfriend of the fucking week, it is not a a <laughs> it's just on every level, right? <laughs> like she is trying hard here. Tom's is being an ass. And it's like you don't deserve her, dude. She needs to she needs to move on. She, you do better with Harry Kim. Come on. Yeah. Yeah. End of story. They have a great scene in the briefing room where things really come together, where you get the kind of full picture of what happened and what these memories are. And we get these flashbacks are about this alien race that we haven't seen before uh, that, you know, naturally have weird shit on their head because this is the Delta Quadrant. The characters are in the, the flashback like they're they're present. But it's clear from the flashbacks that they are not themselves, that they're playing some role of someone else in that circumstance. There's no hint that the person that you're seeing here is Chakotay or is actually Tom or is actually Harry. They're just kind of playing these NPCs. To the credit of the Voyager actors in the briefing room as they relate what's happening narratively and then they cut back to the flashbacks um, – they are very much living in the moment as if it was something that really happened to them. This and I is, thought that, that I thought that was well, well constructed. So again, it's one of those intangibles of the, of the, uh, the construction of the episode, the cinematography, the narrative choices and how they frame all of that, that just stood out so much to me. And the inclusion of gun battle drama I'm sorry, gun battle action and boardroom drama. This briefing room scene you're talking about, uh, I consider to be the first of two what I called uh, 12 Angry Men moments that this episode has. Yeah, that's good reference, Peter. (laughs) Very good reference. Like everybody has a different viewpoint that was involved in the altered memory event. Uh, And everybody's viewpoint is uh, fiercely defended by the person who's been afflicted by it. Nobody really takes a passive role and everybody is very traumatized 
uh, by what they what they see or very firmly rooted in their understanding. Like you said, Chakotay kind of sticks out a little bit as an outlier since he's not subject to the throes of passion on it, but he is pretty firm in his declarations through this. The standout in this scene is is Garrett Wang. Um, his NPC in this circumstance has a really traumatic encounter with with so the 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 crew that they're supposed to be part of is essentially trying to relocate a group of colonists um i I don't recall any of the alien races uh, mentioned in this episode but it's alien race a of which they are part of the npc crew is trying to remove alien race b the intention is to do so with force but without hurting or killing anybody so this is a forced relocation but the purpose here is to not actually hurt anyone to just like, all right, get on the transports and get out of here. Now, I will point out that this militant force that is relocating the colonists, I did not observe any standing collars. I did not get a chance to see the boots. But uh, this adds to the mystery like, who's the real bad guy here? Because as you know, in Voyager, if they don't have that standing collar, they're not actually space Nazis. So it's a it's a hard call. Yeah, we, we don't get background on this race or the other race at all. We have no context for what happened here aside from this group is trying to force this group to leave, but they're trying to do it without actually hurting them. Um, and what we find out is that a group of, of alien group B is taken exception to this, has armed themselves, and there is a firefight that breaks out as uh, during the evacuation at night, and it's when alien group A and B are intermingled with each other, and the natural uh, fog of war sets in, and you start to see a a slaughter of all of the civilians by the military group as they panic about who's shooting at them and why. It's definitely a throwback to actual, you know, Vietnam era war atrocities. This is what not one in specific, uh, but generally speaking, this is what they're trying to portray. You know, the jungle background of it, the civilians that are not involved in the conflict while others who have armed themselves, the fog of war preventing people from knowing which is which, um, and then the reaction of the individual people involved. So like you mentioned, uh, Harry Kim's character that he's portraying uh, is somewhat of a deserter. He runs away from the conflict and ends up in a cave network uh, where he finds two people who had been hiding, um, tells him he wants to get out of there. And one of them is an old man who, as Harry is going to leave, falls. So he guns them both down to great personal shame. Tom's just a a GI Joe who gets winged. Uh, Neelix's character is one of the military uh, guys who finds heavy uh, moral objection to the danger it's putting the kids in. And then Chakotay is kind of a, a leadership type who is uh, advising the, the main guy, Sovereign, Sovran or Savdra. Savdra points out like, hey, everybody's tired. We need to rest. You're going to be dealing with a trigger happy mess and the guy downplays it. All classic war crime tropes from the from the Vietnam era. Just watch any movies from that from that time period or tries to encapsulate that time period. And you see this all the time. Um, I do love the the 
stuff that goes on with Harry Kim where he's like, he's panicked. Uh, he makes the old man makes a sudden movement. He guns both of them down and, and, and a quick movement. And then you cut back to the briefing room and he is fucking losing his mind. Right. Cause as far as Harry's concerned, he did that shit. Right. Like this is real memory in his head. He murdered those two people. This is real as day to him. And you buy that in that moment from him. And that's like the second time in six years that Karen <laughs> Wang has convinced me of, of anything he's doing on screen. So, all right, that's check mark number two. <laughs> good job. Get one more. You'll get a free sub at Subway. Good, here's, good job, buddy. Here's what I'm convinced of is these goddamn wrist mounted flashlights are the worst idea ever. <laughs> he's digging around the cave he's got this rifle he what's interesting is they're wearing their starfleet uniforms they're not in the native uniform of the offensive force they've got um foreign rifles but he's got that starfleet issue wrist flashlight so he's like trying to point this rifle at this old man and this girl while also point the rifle so it's like he's He's got the rifle one arm tucked under his arm and then he's got the the flash. It's it's a terrible process. It, I, th- throw these things in the trash. I hate them every time I see them. And rant. <laughs> you have literally been complaining about those in season one. They're ridiculous. That is some strong V'ger please continuity right there. It's for you, the viewer. They're awful. Um, more of the crew as they approach the the system that uh, the Delta Flyer had been serving. Uh, starts to come under the influence of whatever is going on here. Um, the vision, by the way, is of Group A killing all of Group B. They kill 82 civilians. That's the number that's put on it. Yeah. They're in astrometrics uh, trying to go over the data from Delta Flyer, and there's the first planet, then there's the second one, which I thought that was kind of a cute scene with a I don't know. Anytime I see Voyager interact with like Delta Quadrant merchants, I'm always interested in what those interactions are. So this guy's uh, trying to sell him the elixir of life, but really it's great boot polish. And then there's the third planet, which instantly Janeway recognizes. And that's the clue that there's a, that maybe this wasn't a conflict that the Voyager crew members actually got pulled into, that these are imprinted memories. And Janeway starts to hallucinate. Does she have her full on hallucination at this point? Yeah, she does. So she starts to live through the circumstance. The part of it that we see from her perspective is uh, the leader, Savdra, uh, vaporizing the bodies after the massacre is over to try and cover up the evidence that they did anything. Now, this is some Seska level shit here, right? You've got dead civilians and this dude's just got a, a phaser rifle on disintegrate and he's popping corpses. And Janeway, as her NPC, objects of like, what the fuck? This is insane. We did terrible things here. And now you're trying to just ev- eliminate all of the evidence. Like, what's wrong with you? And he's like, yeah, we're going to eliminate the evidence. And everyone here is going to shut the fuck up about what happened. And uh, the other NPCs train their guns on on Janeway, you know, and she, like everyone else, is living in the moment of the scene where she is, you know, fucking absolutely beside herself with both grief and rage that she was party to this. And now everyone seems to be in on a plan to cover up their crime. You know, it's like, we murdered these people. Like it, everyone just goes 110% on this. And, uh, and, and came is no exception. I will say that the guy they have playing the main military leader, um, 
what's his name? Sovdra. Sovdra. This dude's flat. This guy sucks. I don't know if you're supposed to feel hatred towards him or or disregard or what, but they just this guy cannot hold up his end of the bargain, and he's got so much emotion around him. And that's I don't know. Some he real- doesn't matter. I don't. I just don't care about him. Right? Like what I'm caring about is how this is traumatizing the people we do care about, and that's cool. That's fine with me. I didn't need that guy to 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 come big in those scenes, you know? I think if he would have, though, it would have added a lot, but whatever. So they, instead of just getting the fuck out of this system, uh, Janeway, as always, continues to endanger the ship and fly deeper in. She comes out of her hallucination, um, passed out in the mess hall, which has now been converted into uh, a triage center. And we see that there's a large portion of the crew which has come under the effect of these false memories they they got to get to the bottom of it we also get a good scene here with seven of nine and neelix where he's uh very distraught at what he's done seven tells him that naomi wildman's uh worried about him and he's like no i don't want her to see me or me like this not like this i you know i feel bad i terrorized her uh, this might be like my favorite seven of nine scene in a long time um you know they, they they've gotten better at judiciously using her as we've noted, it was the Seven of Nine show there for a while. A whole season. They've, they've really ratcheted that back, which is nice. And she she doesn't factor very greatly into this episode at all. Um, this is her really biggest scene. And it it handles her character in a at in a, in a much more deft fashion because the the upshot of her conversation with with Neelix is Neelix straight up asks her like you did terrible things as a Borg. Do you feel bad about that stuff? And she says, yes, of course I do. Uh, I was, I, I helped assimilate billions of people. I, I have to live with that guilt every day. And, and she conveys it with a sense of actual emotion that seems correct for her, you know, like it isn't oh too overwrought. It isn't too robotic. It's that soft kind of I'm learning how to be a person. And yeah, I do feel bad about this. And she conveys to Neelix like me living with that guilt is how I remind myself to never do those things again. Because I know I know the terrible consequences of those actions now. And I thought that was really cool. This follows a cohesive story that they've been telling. The same question was posed to her early into her integration with the ship. Balana being shitty and like, you know, uh, you're a mass murder, assimilation, this and that. And her stance back then was like, yeah, so what? You know, I was bored. That stuff happened. And especially really this season, um, there's been this. This redemption atonement plot that she's been following you go back to dragon's teeth her uh jumping the gun and waking up the the space nazis uh because she has this impulse to not follow down um to to undo some of the harm she's done and and i'm hesitant to to give credit to uh what the hell is (laughs) board shanty town the dragon's teeth no 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 the one where fucking paris has a phaser rifle on the board queen or i'm sorry the shuttlecraft on the, the it was january who put the phaser to oh the dark queen. frontier 
but it was the same deal there where she was forced to confront her assimilation history and like really formally rejected the entire notion at that point. So that's good. And, uh, you know, she even goes the extra, you know, 10 yards here and has made a little dessert platter for Neelix to try and cheer him up, which initially he's not interested in because he's so guilt ridden. But once he discovers that there's a uh, chocolate in that Terra nut souffle, uh, maybe he will have just a little bit. And I thought that was very entertaining. The fact that Seven of Nine went out of her way to not only make Neelix's favorite foods, but then like imp- like make a personal change to one of the recipes to potentially improve it for him, that is speaks volumes as far as her advancement as a person, right? Like she is now – she's not overly emotional – but she is definitely making connections with people in a way appropriate to her ability to 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 make those steps and to realize that growth. And that's why I really like the scene. Like it does so much for the ongoing story of Seven of Nine in relation to this story in an appropriate way without dominating what's going on. So many things about this episode that are just like this. This is the sort of high quality production that if Voyager could have maintained, it would have been 10 times the show that it has ultimately been. So they get to the planet in question and you get this uh, little walkie talk towards a transporter room. And it's Janeway and a bunch of other bridge crew guys and phaser rifles everywhere. And then there's like a random no name gold shirt and you're like okay well this guy is definitely gonna die that's the second time i was wrong about this <laughs> first time was thinking that voyager would be helplessly adrift overrun by uh i don't know whirling dervishes or whatever and and, and the second time was thinking this guy was gonna die voyager comes in hot red alert shields up weapons charged they send down the away team party which may as well be an attack forces compression I mean, they, rifles they- all over the place. They are getting ready like they're going to beam down to the president of this planet. They are that <laughs> well armed. <laughs> you know, they're going to beam directly into his office cuz uh-huh. like you said, compression rifles. I didn't see any pipes, but you know. Yeah, short of bringing a tricobalt device down, I, I don't think there's <laughs> any more firepower they could have leveraged. I, I I'm sure they all had boot knives. So they beam down and the planet looks, you know, perfectly beautiful Southern California. Uh, no signs of the settlement. They start searching around. Harry Kim takes uh, half the way team party over to the cave network that he knew about while uh, Janeway and someone else go wandering off towards a power signature that they were picking up. What we find is essentially an obelisk that has a lot of hieroglyphics on it. Yes. <laughs> and, a, and a and a glowy ball at the top. It looks very reminiscent of a similar looking structure from the original series. And there's a side sort of uh, hunt that Tuvok and Harry go on where uh, they find the caves that Harry thinks that he killed these two people. And when they get down there, it's just skeletons and dust. And Tuvok says, yeah, these people definitely got shot here, but it was 300 years ago. You definitely did not do this. Like, yes. calm your shit down, son. You're not responsible. Which still, you know, how hard would it have been for someone in that role to go back and where you think you just killed someone a few days ago uh, and find the uh, 
the the remnants like that. I did want to bring up Tuvok though specifically because they never say that he wasn't affected by this, but they imply it because he never seems to have been affected by it. Um, you know, the the doctor says you know a third of the crew is is feeling the effects, uh, but says everyone's been affected. So you kind of get the impression that a lot a lot of the crew members are are going through having these memories. Um, but Tuvok seems to be not either uh, not a, a affected by it, but maybe experiencing it or not experiencing it all. He's cold well, the whole time. Here's the deal, Joe. Whereas Chakotay was able to fare these memories well because he has worked with the serial killer Lon Suter, uh, Tuvok <laughs> put the serial killer Lon Suter in his brain. And as we saw yeah. in his Dirty Back Alley Grinder Random Thoughts episode, he's got some some pretty naughty stuff banging around up there. So whatever this this jungle nom uh simulation is going on here that's a drop in the bucket to the fucking literal literal okay stock footage uh event horizon hellscape into vox brain so yeah this that is is an excellent that is an excellent point Mm -hmm. like he has definitely had the craziest motherfucker that was ever on this ship in his brain and it was his idea yeah um so yeah see, maybe that's... he just like mm, yes murder i'm familiar with these emotions <laughs> yeah <laughs> you see that's the trick cap i'm always thinking about murder and here we are just years later and lon Suter is still just paving yeah. the way for these fools man yeah. like he's just... murder lon and murder heaven just, you just keep flying with those angel wings bud yeah. <laughs> you fuck fucking you. did it Fuck you, Jerry. Fair Jerry Taylor. You caught you cost us the best of us. The two best, man. Saskatoon. R.I.P. Burn Queen. Um so we find out the the story here is that despite presumably despite the efforts of the the military faction vaporizing uh the evidence that this would all eventually come to light and whether it was the military side as an apology or the victims was somehow somebody creates this memorial. And instead of just having, you know, some statues and some writing, they make a uh, crazy mind control device that is able to influence the entire fucking solar system. Yeah, they call it a synaptic transmitter. Um, and it's essentially beaming out to everyone the memory of what happened and forcing everyone who comes in range of it to relive the experience. Uh, as the inscription on the obelisk indicates, just telling you about what happened is not at all sufficient for understanding what happened. And they and someone along the way decided, well, we're just going to make people relive it because fuck you. <laughs> and, and the last big scene of the episode is the second 12 Angry Men moment, which is when they decide what to do. Um, do they shut this down? Um, do they allow it to naturally run out of power, which is revealed will occur if they don't fix it? Or do they restore it uh, to its full working uh, operation? And this is where I think Neelix's perspective gets paid off. Well, I know you you don't agree, but... 
he is the passionate advocate at the end here for keeping this thing running and specifically links it back to what happened to uh, Rhinex and the war that engulfed his his planet and murdered everyone, uh, except, of course, that Voyager didn't bother to stick around long enough to restore everyone to life yeah. and Jatral, but, you know, whatever. We're just going to breeze past that one more time. Um, but, you know, to remind everybody, his planet was the moon that was around Talax and it was destroyed by essentially a space nuke. And, you know, this this horrible, horrific event was visited upon the Talaxian people. They lost this war. A lot of people lost family members. And, you know, the he's got a personal experience with a war crime and a tragedy and the loss of family. And he has that felt experience that comes from that. And as a consequence, he's like, I get what this is trying to do. Right. This is trying to make people know that this thing happened and to teach the lesson of why it was terrible to anyone that comes by. And because he's had that experience in his own life, now that he's had a chance to sort of understand the context of what he's experienced. He's he's like, yeah, we need to keep this thing running because this shit is bad. And people are these people deserve to be remembered, even if it's in this terrible way. So I'm totally team Chakotay on this one. Chakotay is like, yeah, we need to shut this shit down. Like what happened was bad and some sort of memorial is good. But uh, what is ostensibly a weapon that is inflicting these uh, these these miserable uh, guilt ridden images of mass murder and uh, desecration of corpses isn't really cool that you're just blasting everybody regardless of uh, their intent who comes through the solar system. And Tom's, you know, pretty, pretty keen to this idea of shutting it down as well. But Janeway's like, no, we're going to keep it up. And, oh, and I'm totally with you, by the way. Like the correct answer here is to turn it off, right? Like turn it off, maybe put a little holodeck down there and, and some candles or whatever. But like this thing is a real problem. And if there's anybody who should be able to, you know, Janeway has kind of a compromise, like we're going to put a distress beacon out, you know, alerting people that this thing's out there had this thing influenced everybody in like a mile radius that's one thing the entire goddamn solar system like this is a weapon of mass destruction in its own regards and without any sort of pretext like you will now see the story of our people and it'll take five minutes to remember this maybe it's just plaguing people because it's fucked up and and not working correctly but like if there's anybody that should understand like hey what if there's a busted ass ship that's limping along looking for resources and it's like well here's this fucking catch 22 of like there's a really nice planet with some good stuff on it but you're gonna be subject to this terrible <laughs> uh psionic I mean, I, devastator it wasn't an option prevent uh provided for in the episode but the correct answer i think here is fix it but also make it so that it only turns on if you specifically like go and press the like i wish to experience the brain melting power of murder yeah button. you know like I, I think it I get the point of like we need to leave this active so that the memorial that was intended to teach this lesson about what you know why people can never forget the the loss of life here and the circumstances that led to it and the very human reactions that led to it so that you don't do it yourself. 
cool, right? Like I get that, but the the problem is, is what you're pointing out is it's like it's it's possibly just fucking up the lives of anyone who happens to wander by maybe even getting them killed as a consequence of this horrific thing happening. Yeah. And her, her line of uh, the obelisk at Kittimer, the fields at Gettysburg, those were other people's memories too, but we don't honor them any less. Yeah, but they're not forcing me into like uh... – <laughs> I don't ha- I don't have to accidentally do Pickett's Charge, you know, like <laughs> if I go to Gettysburg, you know. This like, isn't making me watch Hamburger Hill against and my if it, will. And if it was possible to like live in the moment of being a, doing Pickett's Charge, that would be fine if that were possible and I elected to do so. Right. If I gave my consent and said, I am willing to go through this experience to learn this lesson firsthand because I think it is a valuable and correct thing to do, which is the enlightened space person thing to do. Um, But since that's not an option that's provided in the episode and it's just either turn it off or turn it on or or keep it on, you turn it the fuck off. (laughs) Like, that's not not even hard. That's not available to the Delta Quadrant's biggest asshole, Catherine Janeway, who <laughs> just wants to be a big of a dick as possible at every turn. So they fix it up and, and that's that. Uh, I, I, I do want to jump side. Do you have anything else about the end of this? No, no, I just uh, I, I've already kind of spoken all of my praise. Flashback sequences are great. Uh, the construction of the episode is, is I think, uh, particularly of high quality. So that's... I agree. This is a very strong Harry episode. Uh, I want to throw him an MVP status. A dude just got off a two week way team mission and instantly jumps back into work, like fixing shit in the hallway when he has his first um, hallucination. Did you, did you see him start breaking out the fucking the shitty warp effects from Twisted? Oh, yeah. I started used to roar that kind of zoom in, <laughs> zoom out like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. They that, that, that I was like oh, two dollar camera trick. Uh huh. But uh, you know, he goes into the the sick bay, and the doctor's like, "Well, this is a result of over fatigue because you had to jump in and start being super ensign, and you're going to take two days off." And he tries to fight him. Like, man, what a workplace where you've got people who are so eager to do their job that when offered a two day vacation, you're like, "But no, I want to work more." And like, the only way to talk him out of it is to threaten additional day off. Like, what a what a life of uh, post-scarcity, enlightened, scientific. Uh... Well, we've talked about this before. I mean, this is the kind of person that would sign up to be out there, right? Like if you weren't 150% wanting to actually be out there and doing the work, you wouldn't have signed up for Starfleet in the first place. You'd be on your pleasure planet with your fucking holodeck, you know, fucking off forever, right? Like these are the people who are the super eager, I want to be at work at five o'clock in the morning on my day off type of folks, you know? That's why the the Maquis people are so interesting because they're not that, you know, like they're they're sort of greasy and <laughs> and don't fit in, you know, like that. They that want whole dynamic. Yeah, yeah, that 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 dynamic was was so potentially interesting because of that. But it is totally ridiculous that Harry Kim never does get promoted, especially once uh, Paris is demoted. I yeah. Oh, there's a particularly egregious moment that's coming up in this season. And uh, when we get there, I'm sure you'll have something to say about it. Um, Well, speaking of having something to say about something coming up. Oh, hold on. Can I do this one? Can I intro this one? (sighs) It's all yours, Joe. Hold on. I need to. (laughs) 
All right then, there, brother. Let me tell you about the next episode of Star Trek Voyager we're going to be watching on this podcast. The most electrifying man in sports entertainment, Dwayne The Rock Johnson, will be making his appearance when Seven of Nine is kidnapped on an opportunistic ringmancer who forces her to participate in a Nordican blood sport. It's Season 6, Episode 15. Sunatsi! Season sucks, man. Season this episode is fun because it's like fun in a stupid way. <laughs> like it, 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 this, this is this is uh not going to be high art, but I don't think it's not an. I, there's entertainment here, Peter. As long as it's not the doctor <laughs> lip sync singing to a bunch of uh, little assholes, uh, I'll watch it. I'll yeah, watch this it. is way better. Than that. Like it's. <laughs> You know, The Rock is cool, and he's in this episode. Like, this is actually one that Stevie watched back in the day. She said she saw this one because everyone did. Um, We'll get into it more next week, but this is born of a corporate crossover. Mm -hmm. Uh, This There's a whole backstory about why this this exists that has to do with exactly what was happening in the year 2000 when it came to UPN. (laughs) And... Um, you know, they, they made this episode happen uh, in the way that they did to accommodate that. So I'm looking forward to talking about it. Uh, I'll be there, man. Sounds good. <laughs> <laughs>